Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Every year on December 10th, International Human Rights Day is celebrated across the world. The day was selected to honor the United Nations General Assembly's adoption and proclamation on December 10th, 1948 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Its stated purpose is to celebrate one of the first major achievements of the United Nations. The day is normally marked by high-level political conferences and meetings in which world leaders make vague promises to uphold human rights and in their respective nations. This year in the United States, a diverse array of leaders from grassroots movements, um, by the way, I was included in the program, marked the day by speaking out against homelessness and poverty. Millions of people across the United States are now at risk of becoming homeless because of the crisis of its economic impact. According to the National Alliance to End Homelessness, over 550,000 people experience homelessness on a single night. California has the largest homeless population in the nation with 149,000 people experiencing homelessness on a single night. Many of them are women, children, and overwhelmingly people of color. Campaigners for homeless rights, however, point out that these figures are likely low estimates since they leave out dormless college students, people who are living in their cars, people who are temporarily staying with friends or family, and the housing insecure. In Los Angeles, there are at least 60,000 homeless people on the streets every night in the city of Los Angeles. Homeless encampments are springing up in every city across the United States. Nearly 140 million people in the United States live at or close to the poverty line, according to the Poor People's Campaign and the Institute for Policy Studies. Women and children represent 73% of poor people in the United States and disproportionately black and brown. Today on Sojourner Truth, we bring you exclusive audio from a webinar entitled Winter Offensive Human Rights Day Virtual Gathering. The National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Union, as part of what it calls the 2020 Winter Offensive, hosted a Human Rights Day political education and panel discussion virtual gathering in celebration of the anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The event highlighted the history of struggle in the United States for our basic needs as humans, such as housing, health care, a living wage, an adequate standard of living, and our general welfare. It also included call for a care income. The panel included national organizers from various fronts of struggle discussing their work to unite impoverished people and building politically independent organizations. During today's show, you will hear from the following speakers, Marion Kramer, Mary Bricker Jennings, Michelle Tingler Clemens, and Rick Tingling Clemens of the National Welfare Rights Union.
and me, you will hear from me, representing women of color in the global women's strike, as well as the National Welfare Rights Union. Maureen Taylor, president of the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. Anthony Prince of the National Union of the Homeless. Uh, Nishmi Zarinko of Put People First, Pennsylvania, and co-chair of the Pennsylvania's Poor People's Campaign, and the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. We live in a global world where all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The Democratic-controlled House approved a bill authorizing a $2,000 stimulus check to most Americans on Monday. The check would be more than three times the $600 payment recently passed into law. Democrats were responding to President Trump's call for a larger check. It now goes to the Senate, where most Republican senators are sharply opposed to it. Massachusetts Democratic Representative Catherine Clark told CNN that the ball is now in Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's court. It's up to Mitch McConnell. It is long past time that he schedule a vote on making sure that American families have what they need to get through this pandemic. President Trump recently pushed for the higher amount. Critics say the gesture came much too late and endangered a COVID relief and government spending bill Congress had just negotiated. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has declined to publicly address how he plans to handle the issue of the larger check. The House voted 322 to 87 on Monday to override President Trump's veto of the defense policy bill. The margin is well above the two-thirds required. The Senate is expected to consider overriding the veto sometime this week. Trump says the bill fails to limit social media companies he claims were biased against him during his failed re-election campaign. And he opposes language that allows for the renaming of military bases that honor Confederate leaders. The defense bill authorizes more than $740 billion in military programs and construction, and it affirms a 3% pay rise for U.S. soldiers. Indian health officials say they have found six people who returned from the United Kingdom in recent weeks infected with a new variant of the coronavirus. The health ministry says all six patients were isolated and their fellow travelers were tracked down. Close contact of the infected patients were also put under quarantine. Feature Story News' Sriyashi Mukherjee reports from New Delhi. The six infected people are being kept in single-room isolation in specialist healthcare facilities. There are three patients in Bangalore, two in Hyderabad and one in Pune. The patients' close contacts have also been put under quarantine. The Indian Health Ministry has said that the situation is under careful watch and regular advice is being provided to the states for enhanced surveillance and containment. Last week, India suspended flights to and from the UK to try and limit the spread of the more contagious variant of the virus. Sri Mukherjee, New Delhi. British health officials say recent figures show more people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19 in England than at the first peak of the outbreak in the spring. 
There were 20,426 patients in hospitals as of Monday morning, the most recent data, compared to the previous high of 18,974 on April 12th. More from FSN's Chris Jones in London. The April peak of around 19,000 hospital admissions has now been surpassed. On Monday, there were 20,426 people suffering from COVID-19 in UK hospitals. Health officials all over the country say wards are close to becoming overwhelmed with an unprecedented number of emergency calls and record daily cases. Despite that, Sir Simon Stevens says there is hope yet with the rollout of vaccinations. He says he hopes to have offered vaccines to all vulnerable people by late spring. So far, the UK has vaccinated around 800,000 people after the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine was approved in early December. A second vaccine produced by Oxford University and AstraZeneca could be approved in the coming days. And that's FSN's Chris Jones reporting. California Governor Gavin Newsom is expected today to extend strict stay-at-home orders in areas where intensive care beds are running out. Governor Newsom warned residents to brace for the impact of surge upon surge from recent holiday travel. Intensive care units in Southern California and the San Joaquin Valley have no capacity remaining. Newsom said the state is heading into a new phase it's been preparing for as it sets up hospital beds in arenas, schools, and tents, though it's struggling to staff them. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and those were our news headlines. Now we kick off our Sojourner Truth special on the National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Union. During today's program, you will hear presentations by a diverse panel of grassroots campaigners in a webinar entitled Winter Offensive Human Rights Day Virtual Gathering. Let us hear from them now. I want to introduce now to speak on the right to food, which is one of our economic human rights. We will be focusing often on economic human rights tonight. Um, the right to food, Michelle Tingling Clemens from the National Welfare Rights Union. Michelle, I'm going to go on mute and turn it over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen. And greetings, everyone. Um, I want to start with the Article 25 of that useless document that Mary just described to us, <laughs> the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And Article 25, Section 1 says, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. Well, clearly this was written a long time ago, back before women were recognized as people, but we are, we are, we are living in the age where that is now happening. Um, I wanted to say that I spent a lot of time working in the hunger field, actually spent almost about 25 years working for an organization called FRAC, Food Research and Action Center. And it really came to fame first when it sued 26 states and the federal government simultaneously in 1970 to force all states to implement the food stamp program. But later, it went under the Reagan administration, they, uh, they put forward, they exposed a proposal to make ketchup and relish equivalent to vegetables in the school lunch program. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of people here that I know remember that. Uh, but the reality is that 
they were just trying to save money. So they always go to what they call the entitlement programs, meaning programs that have been determined to be necessary for the purpose for which they were established. Now, I just want to talk to you a little bit about how this country has addressed the whole issue of hunger. Like I said, I spent 25 years working in this area and never once did I hear any of my colleagues or anybody else ever talk about how it was we were going to end hunger. I used to get a lot of opposition about coming up with solutions that put more of the resources into people's hands or demanding that they get out of the thrifty food plan. But advocates didn't want to hear that because I guess they all figured they could wait. So, so could everybody else. But in the reality is that hungry people can't wait. Hungry people get penalized for waiting either through ill health or because of lack of inability to concentrate. They don't get their education. Uh, there are too many obstacles to getting, having opportunity to being able to eat in this country. Now, we, in 2018, and we did a conference on food. We called it the Y Conference, the right to food the, and, and your right not to be hungry. Well, what we, the reason we called it the Y Conference is because what we found is that in doing our research, there are folks who have been researching and working in the field for 40 years. And they said, you know, with everything that we've ever put out, we realized that the big problem with hunger is that how people think about hunger. Now, we had to deal with a lot of people who thought that it was because it was scarcity. That's why there was hunger. But what we also were able to tell, show people is that this country throws away as much food as we consume on a daily basis. Okay, I don't know if you heard me, but I'm saying that this country throws away. It, when I say throws away, they plow it under. They drown the chickens. They dump them in the ocean. There's all kinds of places where you can, you can dispose of your livestock, of your crops, if they're not making enough in the market. And that model was first set by FDR in 1933 when that we were in the midst of the height of the depression. People were lining up in the streets looking for food, looking for help. But because farmers didn't have any way to sell their, their crops, the federal government suggested to them that you just plow under your crops and kill your hogs. But when it came out, the, the public was so outraged that they said, okay, okay, we'll buy it from you and then we'll give people opportunity to go ahead and get that food free. So now you understand that a country that thinks that the problem with hunger is to dress the market is not a good system. And are we gonna, we're talking about a system called capitalism. And for those who aren't really sure, that's public production for private expropriation. That means that we, the public, we do all of the producing, but somebody else gets the benefit and profits from it. Now, here, here's, here's the reality. We are all workers. I say we're all workers because in order for us to survive and try to thrive in this economy, we have to work for a living. I'm not talking about getting inheritance or, you know, working off of somebody else's experiment or labor or invention. No, I'm talking about we, the people who make, create, distribute, and produce everything. Top it off, we consume it too. But we're the ones who make and produce everything. So if we understand that we're the ones who make and produce everything, why is it that we're the only ones who are hungry? Why is it that we're the only ones who ever have to beg and ask for what we need? Why are we the only ones who, whenever we come up with a proposal, that there's never, there's always a question about, well, well, can we afford it? Isn't this a lot of money? But that's, maybe we should say that this is a benefit for billionaires and then we wouldn't have that problem because they never ask about money when it's for war or it's for the rich. 
which is basically the same thing. War is just to distract us from the suffering that we're going through by having us go out and try to kill some other colored people around the world so that the rich can continue to maintain themselves. Now, we don't have a lot of time to talk about all of this, but this is all, this is all very crucial because we are the ones whose problem it is, and we are the ones who are, can, only be, can have the only solution to it. Why do I say that? All of the solutions that they've had for hunger have come from us, or we've been pressuring the government. The school breakfast program is a classic example. It was started as a, as a, uh, as a pilot program because there were some representatives who had kids who were hungry and traveled a long distance to school. So that was how they organized it. But it was a pilot. It was a pilot, and when it was started in 1969, until 1974, when the Black Panther Party started their free, no, actually the Panther Party started their free breakfast program in the community for children. Now, the Maryland Food Committee actually sent out a letter to all of the churches in Maryland at that time and said, look, the Black, because the papers had just reported that the Black Panther Party was feeding more hungry children in Maryland than any other institution. And they said, oh, oh, okay, we can't have that. So they reached out to all the churches raised money from the money they charged for the lunch and gave the use the excess to start something called the Maryland Food Committee. But what these, what these um, organizations do, and it's not that they're not good, but they don't do what it is we need, what we the people need. What they do is that they try to work very hard on making our problems more palatable, making it seem not so bad for the people who are suffering. So, you know, they, they still give us food on the thrifty food plan. The Thrifty Food Plan is the lowest cost that they've designed. It was an emergency short-term diet designed by nutritionists in the the 40s. No, I guess it was a little later than that. But it was designed by nutritionists to ensure that you had the basic uh, nutrients that you needed to live on. But that's not what a family needs because that only lasts for two weeks. They have us thinking that the reason our food stamps don't last a month is because we can't manage and don't know how to cook for our families. But like it was just said earlier, we're the ones who keep developing the solutions to our problems. So since we're the ones developing the solutions, we have come to the recognition that we don't need the folks that we've been allowing to be in charge all this time. You know, they, we keep thinking that we have to have somebody with the right title or the right, the right uh, education. But I, was, I remember was being at, in college and my, one of my friends said, where I'm from, I learned that, B, that, that uh, BS is BS, MS is more of it, and PhD is piled higher and deeper. Now, I'm just speaking for, you know, the media that I'm not using the real words. But the reality is, is that we don't need the folks who are in charge to continue to keep us hungry, to keep us ignorant, confused, frightened, and alone, thinking that we are not capable of meeting our needs. When we grow more than enough, we're the ones who grow the food. Why are we hungry? That's unacceptable. We are not going to take it anymore. You probably don't know, but the National School Lunch Program was the first bill passed after World War II. You know why? Because it was decided that it was a major failure of this country not to feed its young people because so many young men were nutritionally unfit for, our, for military service when they signed, went to enlist. So that's that's... Right. that's that's the country we're living in. Those are where the policies are coming from. And that's where that's why we decided that we want what's ours and we're coming to get it too. 
Thank you, Michelle. Wow. Thank you so much. That was awesome. Um, we are going to now turn over to Rick Tingling Clemens with the National Welfare Rights Union, and he will partner up with Elizabeth Davis from the Washington Teachers Union to discuss our right to education. I'll start off with one basic statement. When America started, it was against the law to teach a black person, a person who looked like me, how to read and write. It was against the law. And public education did not come into the United States as a, as a permanent institution until after the Civil War. In, in uh, 1866 and 67, people uh, like Cardoza was coming to the South, into South Carolina to help them to start an educational system. Before uh, uh, folks were educated by the rich, by your, either your church or in the military. Now we, for, for the first time, have public schools. And ever since we started, and public schools were started, by the way, by uh, freed Africans and some Africans who could read and write and were freed, and some uh, whites who sure. were dissatisfied with how the, co- the country was going. So in ever since that time, that public uh, schools were started, there's been an attempt by the rich to destroy our school system, to take away and to change change truth to lies in in their lessons. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to stop now because uh, we have a a real live struggle in in D.C. and it's going across the country is reopening our schools after this pandemic. And we have a champion here in Washington, D.C., and I want everybody to listen to her, and, and, and maybe we can pass some of this on. Sister Liz. Sister Liz is president of, of uh, Washington, Teachers. Washington Teachers Union number six, and she's a very good friend. And she's been uh, carrying this fight on her back. Thank you, Rick. And thank, I want to thank Michelle and Rick for inviting me to this panel because this is so near and dear to my heart as a career educator who's taught in Ward 7 and 8 for over 35 years. So you know that I am a resident of D.C., but also a resident of Ward 7 and 8. Um, Over the past few weeks, you know, we've heard a lot uh, about the achievement gaps, academic drop-off, reopening for in-person teaching, not only in D.C., but across the nation, uh, the ability to do it safely, But you've heard very little about opportunity gaps that have continued to grow. Um, And these are gaps that have been growing in D.C. and across the nation. And, of course, in D.C., the the largest opportunity gaps exist in public schools in D.C. than any urban school district in the nation. But we don't hear a lot about opportunity gaps, the growing achievement gaps. Very little about the digital divide that has been in existence for Decades in D.C., a decades across the U.S. The pandemic basically amplifying these inequities uh, is one of the best, one of the benefits of what's happening now. Uh, the digital divide, 35% of our students do not have access to Wi-Fi computers when our schools closed. And, and the fact that most of the students who are experiencing these inequities are minority children of color. Quite frankly, I'm pleased that the opportunity achievement gaps 
are getting this kind of attention. Many students in our city and across the US don't have access to a librarian. This year, during the pandemic, our schools reopened in DC with 25 schools cutting their school librarians. 23 of those schools were in Ward 7 and 8, where the highest population of Black and Brown and poor children live. So many of, many of the nation don't have access to a librarian. We don't have access to algebra, geometry, well-rounded curriculum. And as a teacher in Ward 7 and 8, most of my career, until I campaigned for president of this organization and had the opportunity to visit schools in other parts of the city in order to talk to teachers, I found out that we actually have a dual school system that is now a three-tiered school system, amplified by privatization, charter schools proliferating heavily in Ward 7 and 8. And they usually target the poorest communities. The reason to siphon public dollars for private use. And I'm sure that there are gonna be a lot of, it, uh, of explanations about the need for choice. My choice has always been a quality matter of right public school system, and it always will be. I attended a segregated school system in the South until third grade. My mother moved me to Washington, D.C. to a de facto segregated school system. And while the health pandemic has brought renewed attention to the digital divide, that has been something I have been grappling with for over 20 years. It's been, a, it's been you know, closing the opportunity gaps that plagued the school system and addressing those in a very real way is one of the benefits of what is happening now in this city around addressing those, realistically addressing those, those issues. I'm the president of the Washington Teachers Union, but I'm first and foremost a teacher. I believe our students are only limited by the opportunities that we provide them. And I heard a, the two speakers allude to political will. We have the way or the means to level the playing field for students across this country, but in many places, including in DC, there is not the political will to do so. Our public schools are supposed to be a great equalizer. Our schools must be a place where all students can rise up and achieve, but it's not. During my 35 year stint in DC public schools, I had the pleasure of teaching at John Philip Sousa Middle School, one of the five corresponding cases of the Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision. I'd been there for three years and was not aware of that. And when I discovered on the 50th anniversary of Brown that Sousa was one of the corresponding cases, I could not help but teach my students about the Brown, the Bowling v. Sharp case, the Plessy case, the Brown case. Not only, not just for them to know the facts about what happened, but for them to use that fact, those facts and that history to change unsatisfactory conditions in Sousa the year I was there, and they did so. As a teacher at P.R. Harris in Ward 8, same year, I recall having to file a grievance to get the results of a water test that proved that 2,300 students in that school were being poisoned by lead. Now, you don't think that that would have been public outrage. No. One of the custodians who happened to like the fact that I was an advocate for my students came and shared with me the water was turned low but not turned off because it was contaminated with high volumes of lead. I reported it to the State Board of Ed member at that time. As a result, three days later, I received a transfer, an involuntary transfer to another school. It took weeks after the grievance just to get that report out to parents. And of course, once it became media attention, water was sent into the schools and the students were provided with bottled drinking water. And of course, at Sousa Middle School, before the school was modernized, the plan was to, to basically 
raise the building, tear it down, even though it was a historical landmark. The students fought to keep it open once they learned the history. And as a result, the students, the school was being modernized for two years while leaving the students in the building as they removed asbestos from the building over a two year period. It took a council member's intervention, the Marshall Heights Community Organization to intervene and have the students move out into a swing space. So I'm just thinking about those things that exist when we talk about education as a human right. Really and if it, not, if it isn't, it should be. It should be a constitutional right. But we're talking about a quality education, not the basics, because there is a very uneven playing field in D.C. public schools almost 70 years after Brown v. Board was passed. We are still grappling with the same inequities, the same disparities. We are still grappling with systemic racism across the city. White flight as a result of Brown v. Board led white families to west of the park, east of the river, Anacostia. We now have a lot of schools that are de facto segregated in deplorable condition and basically resembling those very schools that Brown v. Board addressed. One of the things I recall when my students studied the case they studied the case of Kenneth Clark, an experiment with dolls, which was used in the case to show the damage that was been doing, being done to black kids, noticing the disparity in the way they, they were treated as students, the schools they attended, the books they received, which were books that were handed down from white schools to black schools, libraries that had old books. At Susan Middle School in 2005, one of my students joined me at a council hearing, a seventh grader, to give her testimony about the condition of Sousa 50 years after Brown. And in her comments, she said, my school has a library, but no librarian. It's been closed for three years. And when we complained about it to the principal, he unlocked the library to allow us to just go in and use it during our lunch period. She said, but the same books are in the library that were there in 1953. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to take a quick a quick station break. When we return, we will continue our special on the webinar entitled Winter Offensive Human Rights Day Virtual Gathering. Um, we'll be right back. I was born by the river in a little town. Just like the river, I've been running ever since. He said it's been a long time coming, but I know my change is gonna come.
and welcome back. Check us out on our website at sotrueradio.org. If you're on Facebook, you can look for us and uh, like us there. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter at SoTrueRadio. We're also on SoundCloud. You can go to the search bar and type in Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott to find us. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Detroit, Michigan. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Scotland. Now, we return to our special on the National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Union. During the second half of today's program, you will hear more presentations by a diverse panel of grassroots campaigners in a webinar entitled Winter Offensive Human Rights Day Virtual Gathering. Let us hear more from them now. Okay, thank you. Thank you so very much. And you know, COVID-19, Uh, more than anything else, I think, has brought to focus how much we are dependent on caregivers. The mothers, the grandmothers, the aunties, the men who are unpaid primary caregivers at this time of the coronavirus are actually frontline workers, although they're not seen as such. They're joining our sisters and brothers who are low-wage essential workers and who are paying a very, very heavy price uh, for COVID. The toll is very heavy. Now, while increasingly there are articles appearing in the mainstream press about the importance of caregiving and caregivers at this time of COVID, some are even full of heavy and some shocking statistics about the economic value that unpaid caregivers um, give to society. But none of them, not one of them, recommend that we get some money, that it is a job that deserves, that has earned the right to a wage. But every day and in every emergency, unwage and low-wage caregivers, urban and rural, mostly women, but some men, often immigrant women, struggle to protect and care for people of every age and condition. Even mothers in prison try to do as much as they can to care for their families from the inside. Now, way back in 1980, the International Labor Organization estimated that women do two-thirds of the world's work for 5% of the world's income. Today, women and girls worldwide do more than three-quarters of all unpaid care work, a total of 12.5 billion hours a day. We want people who are doing the work and growing the food, who are caring for the environment to get a care income that is adequate so that we can do that work. Or if we don't want to do that work, find another way to organize the work, whether it is in a collective social organizing by street, by village level. I'm from a village. I'm from the little island of Barbados in the family or whatever ways we feel people we care for and ourselves are satisfied with. A lot of what we need in our communities are work that we may want to do and have earned the right to be paid for it. We want choices to take care of our babies ourselves or to put them in safe, affordable childcare. Every mother knows how unnatural it feels to leave our babies in the care of strangers, but for so many of us these days, we have no choice. But to trace back the movement for a caregiver wage in the United States, we have to go back to the mid-1960s. I think it was 1965 when the late, great Johnny Tillman, who was president of the National Welfare Rights Organization, said, I'll quote Johnny, if I were president, 
I'd start paying women a living wage for doing the work we are already doing, child raising and housekeeping. The welfare crisis would be over, just like that. Housewives would be getting wages too. That's Johnny Tillman. And um, though I was in New York City at the time and worked with Beulah Sanders, another great from the National Welfare Rights Organization, we all met up in 1977 at the first congressionally mandated conference on women. And guess what? They had a resolution there on welfare that was a workfare resolution. So Johnny and Beulah and Frankie Jeter and Christine Morrison, myself, I was with Black Women for Wages for Housework. We got together. We got rid, we threw out that resolution and we wrote it and we opposed workfare. Here's what it said. The elimination of poverty must be a priority for all those working for equal rights for women. And just as with other workers, homemakers receiving income transfer payments should be afforded the dignity of having that payment called a wage, not welfare. After 1977 victory, although workfare was being introduced by states, starting with Wisconsin and others, but it took 20 years, two decades, before the powers that be were able to federalize it with welfare reform. Okay, so, um, so that, was, that was Houston. But there's another part of this story, because across the pond in Europe, in the UK, in Canada, and in fact, all Western nations across the world, mothers get a child benefit, a payment that is not means tested. We don't have it in the United States, as powerful as we think they are. We are. But it is only now that there's a piece of legislation in, in Congress called the American Family Act that is trying to implement a kind of child benefit. Also, additionally, Two members of the Congressional Black Caucus have a bill in Congress entitled the Worker Relief and Credit Reform Act that calls for the definition of workers to include unpaid family caregivers and students and that we should get money for it. Now, therein lies the rub. We make and produce on the daily basis all the workers in the world. What does capital and capitalism gain as a result? Trillions of dollars worldwide. Wealth that truly belongs to us, but is stolen from us. And we're not going to have it any longer. We're not going to take it any longer. We're calling it out. Billionaires are running around feeling so proud about their achievements, but they wouldn't be billionaires without ripping us off, without us. We are doing the work. The wealth belongs to us. We're demanding it. We're organizing to call them out and claim what belongs to us, not to them. And when we do this work outside the home, as home care workers, domestic workers, et cetera, it's usually the lowest pay because the expectation is that overwhelmingly it is women who do this work, that we do it for free. So why should anybody get a decent pay for it, much less a living wage? And it reflects the low status that governments, the corporations, that the market places on those of us who do this work, but also on the lives of most of those we care for. With coronavirus, we now know that one out of three women are essential workers at wage work. And that doesn't, of course, include those of us who are essential workers in the home. And the market val um, values unwage work at $10.8 trillion, but never suggests that we should get any of it. Because the trick is, we're exploited. We do the work 
they're creating everything and everybody. They keep the money and then they treat us as though we are lazy scroungers, as though we're just charity cases. Then in fact, as Michelle said earlier, and Mary BJ, we are doing everything. We took our case to the UN. I don't have time to talk about that now. We want a resolution about valuing and counting the work. It took us 10 years, by the way, to do that. But now we're moving beyond the valuing and counting. We want the bread. We want the money. We want them to stop ripping us off. And then we ran across uh, some people who are putting forward a Green New Deal in Europe, demanding that a care income also go to people who are working to save the environment. So just in, in, in wrapping it up, Protecting people and protecting the earth can be equated and prioritized over the uncaring market. That is a major step to transforming the world as we know it, but also to save it. I also just want to say that the Poor People's Campaign in its Jubilee document, I quote them, they say, include a care income to recognize the economic contribution of routine housework, childcare, tending to the elderly and other household or non-household members and other unpaid activities related to household maintenance. That's the PPC. But let me just end with a really short thing from Brother Marks. I think some of y'all know who he is. So yes, we do want a living wage for all. We want a care income on top of the guaranteed income. We're not interested in maintaining the stranglehold of capital of the market over all of us. You know, Mark said you can count on human beings to make more workers. Um, those who are capitalistic minded don't want to value what we do for ourselves, for our class. They only want to value us if we work for them. We want to break with that. Because while we're demanding wages, we know our work is invaluable. And here's what Mark said. It's in capital page 638 in volume one. I'll end with that. All progress in capitalist agriculture is a progress in the art, not only of robbing the worker, but of robbing the soil. All progress in increasing the fertility of the soil for a given time is a progress towards ruining the more long-lasting sources of that fertility. Capitalist production, therefore, only develops the techniques and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker, the land and the people. And I'll end there because we want what's ours. And as our sisters and brothers in DC says, and we're coming to get it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. And I bring you greetings from Michigan Welfare Rights in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I'm going to uh, refer to uh, the same human rights article that is one of our favorites. And that's uh, article number 25. And, that go, and what it says, it starts off with everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of that person and their family, which includes food, clothing, housing, medical care, and all the necessary social services. Then there's another little section near the bottom of that same article, uh, section two, that says motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. And that means children, whether born in or out of wedlock, shall enjoy the same social protection. 
So what I did in preparation for my comments this evening is I went and got the family Bible. And I went and got the, uh, uh, the King James Version of the Bible. And I took a look at how it is divided. And uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, it goes from page 1 to page 703. All kind of people are quoted in the first section uh, 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 the Old Testament. But then you get to the New Testament and it goes from page 1 to 219. So I thought, well, why should there be one-third at the end and three times as much in the beginning? And I opened up the family Bible and this is the one my parents got. I guess it says 1963. And on the fly page, what it says is, ask and it shall be given to you. And it says, seek, and you will find. And then it says, knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. And that comes from Luke 11 and number 9. And what I would say to all that is participating in this, we haven't sought right, we haven't asked right, and we haven't knocked loud enough. We already have the authorization to go ahead. And my guess is, is that uh, according to scripture, when Jesus showed up and said, y'all don't have to believe in all that other stuff no more. We're going to do some different things. And the way we're going to change this is that you have the right to live through the birthing process and have all these things. And that's what the message is that I like to speak on for this evening a standard of living is what it calls for and i don't think they were talking about trying to figure out how to live the way uh the folks in the old testament and mary and joseph and the way they lived i'm not interested in a shack i'm not interested in living out in the prairie I, i'm a city girl and i like city kinds of things so my guess is is that the opportunity to live a life that's based in an economic opportunity that exists at the same time I'm here, that's what I have a right to. Just like the Bible, uh, aspirational, foundational document, I believe that the Declaration of Human Rights is an extremely important document because it says, even in 1948 when it came, it says these are the things that you are supposed to have a right for. And that's 72 years ago. And we still don't have those things I heard some of my colleagues talking about. This is a document that expresses that human beings need to be able to live a certain kind of way. And in Detroit and in Highland Park uh, and in Michigan, we have been fighting for a long time for access to water, whether or not you can pay for it. How outrageous. You can't live a long time without water. Yet people in my state and certainly other states across the United States of America at other places have been fighting for access to water and sanitation. So I want to express the fact that there is an economic theme that goes through every one of these articles. You have the right to education like a uh, uh, Miss Elizabeth said, whether you could pay for it or not. You have the right for 
uh, uh, to be able to breathe. You have the right to be able to have health care. You have the right to be able to have all of these things. And they have already been foretold. You have those rights. I look at the fights that we're in. And for those of you that don't know, we just two days ago, a tremendous victory was put together and announced. We have been fighting the mayor in Detroit, some of the mayors in Highland Park, and some of the mayors in Flint, Benton Harbor, and other places for a long time, demanding access to water and sanitation. And the tool, the vehicle that we have always stressed is that we have to have a water affordability plan. And that water affordability plan is based on uh, folks being able to make payments based on their income. So water and utilities and all the rest of these things that we've been talking about for the last night or for the last hour or so are items that we have already been told we have the right to access those things. And I go back to this biblical verse. It says again, ask. Well, we ask. It says again, seek. We've been seeking. And it says at the end, knock on the door. Well, uh, I believe that the problem is, is that we have not been knocking loud enough. So when my colleagues say uh, 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 what we what we are saying is that we have done those things. We have asked, we have sought, we have knocked, and nobody has answered. I believe that's a song. Somebody's knocking on the door. Uh, uh, somebody uh, wants to be let in. It is now time to do what my uh, colleagues have already indicated. What we have to do now is to go forward. Somebody has our rights and has decided that they will tell us when we can have access to these things. And to the caretakers, to the factory workers, to the nurses and the doctors that are dying at COVID whatnot because they can't get the right kinds of uniforms and the right kind of health care and the right kinds of things that we absolutely have, we're not going to knock on that side of the door anymore. We're going to come through that door and we're going to identify those things we have to have and we're going to get those things. There's another song that I learned a while back at the Union Theological Seminary and it talks about going down to the rich man's house and taking back what he stole from me. Well, I'm up for that. I got a new pair of Skechers, got that thick one-inch rubber under the bottom. And to my colleagues, let's go get our stuff. My name is Maureen Taylor. I serve as state chair of the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. And thank you for a few moments of your time. Uh, and thanks so much, uh, Kristen, for that introduction. And uh, I want to express how honored I am to be part of uh, this presentation, this outstanding group of fighters, some of whom I've known for a long time. Others uh, I hope to get to know as we our struggle goes forward. <clears throat> I think that, um, as you guys know, uh, this event tonight is being co-sponsored by the National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Organization. We have drawn extensively the lessons of the National Welfare Rights Organization. Now the National Welfare Rights Union uh, has provided us with just a rich a store of experience and insight into how to actually build a movement from the ground up. Uh, Johnny, the Johnny Tillman uh, approach to leadership was 
you put the people who are being impacted in the leadership of the fight. Uh, it, it, the leadership, of course, has to include others. But I think that front and center <clears throat> in any kind of movement of the dispossessed and the poor and the homeless and the downtrodden has to be led by those who are actually impacted by those social evils. So we draw a great deal of inspiration. And I also want to lift up the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, which, if you guys don't know, was uh, and still is, I assume, a named organizational plaintiff in the lawsuit that was brought uh, in with the national uh, with NAACP as well against the administration's attempts in Michigan to disenfranchise uh, tens of thousands of voters. I saw that in the paper. I said Michigan Welfare Rights Organization. And so we we draw heavily from the experience and the current struggles of our sisters and brothers in the welfare rights uh, union. Uh, as you know, also the, the winter time, this is part of what we call our homeless union winter offensive is uh, uh, we began the winter offensive 30 years ago uh, when the homeless, the original national union of the homeless was formed because the winter is the deadliest season for those who are unhoused. Uh, it, it just become a commonplace uh, fact of life that every winter we see people that unable to afford traditional housing perishing on the streets and the alleys and the, you know, the rural areas, the woods, under the freeway overpasses, by the railroad tracks, bodies that are not even given the decency of a burial or carted off to potter's fields and dumped in mass unnamed graves. This is just a national disgrace, a national tragedy that we've seen every year and continue to see. But this winter, we're determined to say, housing now, no more death in the streets. And I, I wanna echo what uh, what uh, Elizabeth Davis from the Washington Teachers Union pointed out. And that is that uh, uh, it, the pandemic has, with all of its tragedy, with all of its death and all of its just uh, uh, you know extreme hardship imposed on so many people, nevertheless, has allowed us to concentrate attention on long-standing grievances in this country that normally have no attention paid to them or only have attention paid to them at certain times of the year. But our movement can't be, we can't build our movement apart and aside from all these interconnected struggles. Just to give you an example, how can we fight for housing? How can we fight against homelessness? When in the eviction courts, every single day, even before the pandemic, people are being kicked out and judges are issuing judgments for possession. How can we not stand with the tenants who are fighting every day to hang on to what they have? How can we not stand with the students? How can we not stand with the children in the schools? We have a McKinney-Vento Act, which supposedly allocates resources and creates a federal mandate to provide everything necessary so that a homeless student has an opportunity to academically succeed. But what we say in the homeless union is it's hard to do your homework when you don't have a home. It's hard to do your homework when you don't have a home. So how can we build a homeless union and a homeless union movement apart and aside from these students, apart and aside from the very, just the wide variety of manifestations and actually homelessness itself, we say is the most concentrated expression of this poverty, the healthcare crisis. The percentage of people who are homeless today because they lost everything in a family medical emergency is 
20% of all the homeless in this country got that, uh, became homeless because they lost everything because of the lack of health insurance. We're out of time. I'd like to thank all of the speakers featured in today's show, as well as the National Union of the Homeless and the National Welfare Rights Union for allowing us to share this audio with you. I would also like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, Romero Funes, our assistant producer, and today's audio engineer. If you'd like a copy of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And remember to visit our website, so trueradio.org, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, our handle at SoTrueRadio. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and I hope you are having a good and safe holiday season. And those of you who are celebrating uh, Kwanzaa, uh, we certainly send our greetings to you.